Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this evening where we can uh, study your word. We ask for your spirit to be here with us. We thank you for the many ways that you've blessed us. I ask God that you would uh, humbly use me, um, or I'm humbly asking you to use me to be a mouthpiece of your word. So uh, please fill me with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, there was something I was going to elaborate on in an announcement. Oh, Ukraine. So, this, was gonna, this is going to be our intern trip, and we opened it up to the uh, body here to, to go on that trip. And they're several thousand dollars short, which um, I, I know that they're going to get that money in. But we just wanted to present that to the body um, to kind of support them on that trip. Uh, the majority of those funds are in, and, and uh, yeah, thank God for that. So we're going to finish off chapter 2 of James. I'm going to go through verses 14 through 16. And um, many of you are excellent cooks. I know. Look at me. I know. My family and I have had the pleasure of uh, tasting many of your dishes since the birth of our second child over two months ago. So for the last nine, ten weeks, I've been gaining weight. And it's been a blessing. Uh, My clothes are a little tighter. I don't have to wear a belt anymore. But I'll start working out again. I'm just not accustomed to eating desserts. You know, we just never make desserts. And now we're getting like pans of brownies and two dozen cookies. It's like, yeah. Yeah. I wish I could have that control. It's just like, okay, here. But so, but you know, no one believes that someone's a good cook because they say they are, right? They are a good cook because they do good cooking. And a good cook doesn't establish their reputation with their words, but with their actual cooking. So have you ever been to someone's house who who kind of just raves about their cooking, but then you go and you taste their food and it's just like, mm. Mm, it's not good. And then there are people that don't say anything about their cooking and you go to their house and you eat their food and you're like, that's good, right? And... What's even more crazy if that person would be bragging about how good they are at cooking if they've just never cooked before? Like, I'm a good cook. Really? What, have, what do you make? I just know I'm a good cook. Right? Do you, do you know people who claim to be Christians but don't act like Christians? Right? People who claim to be followers of Jesus but don't live how Jesus lived? And the biggest obstacle to Christianity is Christians. Are we guilty of not living up to what we claim? See, I remember growing up in my house where I wasn't allowed to go to bed until I read a chapter of the Bible. And this was at the very earliest age that I could read. So I think it was like five. And my mom made me read the King James Bible every night. Starting in Genesis. Five-year-old. Well, I did that, and did it religiously, and I studied religiously, and, and at a very young age, well into my teenage years, I re- remember all this, that my mom kind of forced this on me, and was uh, trying to get me to do this every night. And then I remember my mom, every morning, she would be in the living room when I woke up in prayer. And she would be looking outside, outside the window, and she would be praying for me. And um, so if any of you are wondering, 
how in the world I'm here as a pastor, you have her to blame for it. But, but you know, all that stuff really didn't translate into how I treated people. And I ended up being really judgmental. I ended up being really legalistic. And um, I just wasn't a lot of fun to be around. I'm not that fun to be around now, but it was worse back then, right? (laughs) And I would just get on my friends and my relatives for living immoral lives, right? And just telling them that how wrong they were, that you were, they were displeasing to God and how God didn't approve of their behaviors. And it's not that what I was saying was necessarily wrong. It was right. It was biblical. But it, it just wasn't in love. And after sharing the gospel with my friends and relatives over and over and over again, wondering, why aren't they accepting Jesus? It wasn't until I was an adult that I was able to reflect upon my own behavior that to see that I was the biggest obstacle. You know, why would they want to be like me? Grumpy, judgmental, telling everyone they're wrong, right? And not loving them. And I don't think I was doing things to show them that I loved them. And I was guilty of just talking about Jesus without backing up what I was saying by my actions, by loving them. And I was good at loving other people. They could see how I went to other countries and did humanitarian work or relief work, but it wasn't affecting them in a personal way. It wasn't affecting them directly. So our goal tonight is to be helped by the book of James to work on our consistency as believers so we attract others to the Christian faith and not repel them. Okay, starting in verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? See, James wants us to realize that faith that doesn't have works can't save us. That particular kind of faith doesn't save. And notice the word says here. Okay, This is just someone who says or professes faith but doesn't have works. See, true faith is accompanied by action. And James thinks that it's impossible that someone can sincerely have faith, a saving faith, with no works. And someone can say they have faith and fail to show works. So James has a legitimate question. Can faith save him? Or can that type of faith save him without accompanying works? Remember that James wrote to Christians who had a Jewish background. Jewish Christians who found the beauty of salvation through faith. They experienced the joy of freedom from this works-based righteousness. And this works-based righteousness is impossible. It's such an unbearable weight, isn't it? And this weight was lifted from these early Christians that they forgot the importance of works. And then they swung to the other extreme, from works-based to no works, just faith. And they started thinking that works didn't matter at all. And now James is not contradicting Paul, okay? Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 insists that we're saved not through works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. James simply clarifies the kind of faith that actually saves. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, but true saving faith will naturally have works that accompany it. There's a saying that goes, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. See, there, there are good works that go with it. And Paul understood that works were essential in proving the essence of our faith. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk within, walk in them. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. This is a faithful saying, that these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. If you believe certain things to be so, then your life is going to be lived accordingly. Your actions will be a testimony of your faith and beliefs. So if you say that you believe in God, and God is supreme, and that God is your first love, then consequently there will be evidence to verify what you've declared. Your your faith will be proven by the works you do. And if there is an absence of works, then you're deceiving yourself. You don't really have the faith that you declare that you have. Verse 15, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of, the, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James wants us to see the difference between an inactive faith and an active faith. Talk's cheap. And the disciple of Jesus must put action along with words. And if a brother or sister is naked or destitute of daily food and we, we fall and fail in this most simple, good work, then we've confirmed that we don't have a living faith. We have an inactive faith. And that inactive faith is dead. Faith without accompanying deeds is dead. It's a dead faith. Verse 16 shares something that some of us are guilty of here. It says, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. Some of us have done this. Someone out there is asking for food or clothing, and instead you just pray with them. You don't give them something to eat. You don't give them something to warm them up. Your words aren't going to fill their empty stomach. Your words aren't going to warm their bodies like a blanket will. See, you know that person in front of you needs food or warmth. You know their need. But you offer nothing to help them except some religious words. That's lame. Give them the practical things that are needed for the body. Verse 16 ends with, What does it profit? True faith and the works that go together with it aren't only made up of spiritual things. There also has to be a concern for the most basic needs, such as food or warmth. And when needs arise, it's not just about prayer. Yes, prayer is very important. Very important. But sometimes prayers are just excuses to help others in a way that's just more convenient for you. And sometimes you have to pray less and just do more. God has answered the prayer of somebody helping the one out in need. You! Help them. Sometimes we pray as an alternative to action. And oftentimes it's just an excuse not to act. And there's a huge difference in saying something spiritual and doing something spiritual. St. Francis of Assisi says, Preach the gospel always. If necessary, use words. And James is telling us that faith without works is dead. Yes, faith alone saves us. But it has to be a living faith, not a dead one. There has to be life, vitality, spirit, and a dynamic relationship within that faith. And you can see if your faith is alive by seeing if it is working together with works. 
And if there aren't any works attached to your faith, then it's dead. It's lifeless. It's motionless. It's fruitless. There's no spirit. It's dead. And God's salvation to us is a gift. And it's a gift received through faith. But the evidences of receiving that gift is characterized by you and your actions. Your obedience to God. And living faith is real faith. If we really believe in how Jesus lived and that that should be how we should live, then we will follow through with our actions. If we really trust in Jesus and have faith in Him, then we'll care for the naked and the destitute. Verse 18, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. See, James is anticipating that some will attempt to separate faith and works. You can't. You have faith and I have works. That's what someone will say, right? It's just that word say again. But no, you can't. You, you either have living faith and works, or you have a dead faith. Now you can also have just works, but that doesn't save you either. It's faith and works. And the works are the evidence of the faith that you have. James then makes a logical progression in his argument. He says, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. We can't see someone's faith, but you can sure see their works. We can't see faith without works, but you can sure prove the authenticity of faith by works. See, faith is invisible, and you can't see it until it's demonstrated by works. Works are what makes your faith visible. And my works are demonstrated by my obedience to God. And much of that is brought through with His Word and and through action. And now James is not contrasting between faith and deeds. It's not faith versus deeds. But rather that deeds are the fruit or the expression or the proof of our faith. And this doesn't contradict Paul saying we're saved by faith. James is just helping us see the difference between real faith and phony faith. He then gives us a very startling but helpful illustration in verse 19. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. For those of you who have good theology, congratulations. The demons have good knowledge of theology as well. But you know what? They're still damned. The devil and the demons even believe in God. One God. And did you know that there's not a single demon that's an atheist or an agnostic? Right? The, the only ones that don't believe in God are fools. According to Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. See, de- demons demonstrate the fallacy of, of what faith without works is. The demons believe in God, but they have a dead faith in God. Their belief that God exists and their acknowledgement of God's existence does nothing because it's a dead faith. It's their demonic faith. And there are no godly works that accompany that faith. See, there isn't a demon out there that doesn't believe in the existence of God. They all know who He is. They all know who Jesus is. Mark chapter 1, verse 24, And He cried out saying, Let us alone. What have we do to do with you? Jesus of Nazareth, did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So big deal if you just, in your head, know who Jesus is. 
Demons believe that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the promised Messiah, that He was crucified, born of a Virgin Mary, and returning in judgment. Demons have an orthodox faith. You can believe all those things and not walk with God in the present and not end up with God at the end of your life or at the return of Jesus. Their type of faith doesn't save. The questions are whether you have obeyed God. Have you submitted your life to His Lordship? Have you surrendered your life? Are you going about doing works that prove that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you obeying God's commands? Where is the fruit in your life that you are following Jesus? Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. It's not simply just saying you have faith. It's demonstrating the faith through works that are harmonious with what you are declaring you believe. It's a big deal if you have a ton of biblical knowledge. If you don't obey, if you aren't obedient and living the way God has instructed you, you're living like a demon. If I believe that there was going to be some massive earthquake in the Bay Area in the middle of this service, 7.30, so you have two minutes, and I say there's a massive earthquake that's going to hit us at 7.30, and this whole building is crashing down, you wouldn't believe me. My actions don't correspond with what I'm saying. Right? But if I run out of here yelling, getting in my car trying to save, find a safe place for me, you're going to be more apt to believe me, right? That at the very least that what I'm saying, I really believe and it corresponds with what I'm saying. You might think I'm crazy, but you'll believe what I'm saying. It's the same with our faith in God. Do our actions correspond? Do our actions show that Jesus is our Lord? Do our works show that Jesus is in our life? See, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Just like going to a donut shop doesn't make you a policeman. Right? It's just... Is your faith a living faith? Is your relationship with God dynamic? How do you know your relationship with God is real? It's dynamic, like relationships with your friends or your family. They're, they're corresponding actions to relationships, right? You don't live independently of others in your life, do you? There are consequences and benefits to the way you treat your relationships. So in California, for instance, there are laws that I have to abide by in regards to taking care of my children, or they can be taken from me. So my wife doesn't wake up frantically in the morning and say, please remember to feed our children. Because if you don't give them breakfast and change their diapers, CPS might come and take them away. The law doesn't frighten us into taking away our kids. In fact, I don't even know the details of the law. The law is there to protect children, but because we want to provide for our kids, because we love them dearly, the love naturally flows out of our lives. So does your love for God naturally flow out of your life? That love looks like something. It's not just empty words. We should be able to see that. See, this isn't legalism. This is not being judgmental, right? Oh, you're so legalistic. Why do you feed your kids so often? (laughs) Why do you bother clothing them, changing their diapers? You're so legalistic. I can't believe it, the type of life you live. It's not legalistic. 
I love them. I do things for them out of love. It's an act of love. So it should be with God. It's a natural outpouring of my love. So, but I was baptized. I take communion. I know the worship songs by heart. I can even close my eyes and worship without looking at the words. I was raised in church. That's not what it's about. You have to decide for yourself whether you're going to be a disciple of Jesus. No one else can decide for you. You have to decide. And after you choose to be a disciple of Jesus, it has to lead towards a transformation. It will lead towards a transformation. It can't just be an accumulation of knowledge. There needs to be evidence. Even the demons tremble. Does encountering Jesus make you do anything? Even, G- even the demons tremble. What is the natural flow of love from your relationship you have with Jesus? Has there been a change in your life from when you didn't know Jesus to now knowing Him? Verse 20, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? If we believe in a faith that is useful in manner, then we should demonstrate our belief in our, in our actions. Faith manifests itself in our actions. And if we say we believe that God is compassionate and loves the poor, then we should be like Him and help the poor in a compassionate manner. And if we don't, we either don't really believe God or we just, you know, we just don't really care what He wants. And in verse 20, James is asking his readers if they are willing to see that faith without working that faith out in practical ways, that that's of no value. He wants them to be willing to see that truth. Verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Did you know that Abraham was justified by faith long before he offered Isaac on the altar? Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Abraham offering up his son Isaac as a sacrifice was a great tangible acting out of his trust in God. See, our greatest treasures are our children. And Abraham's son Isaac, he was was not an exception to that rule. And besides this being his only heir, Isaac was the key to Abraham's realizing in a tangible way the promises of God that had kept him going all those years. And to lose Isaac was to lose his future. But Abraham's actions corresponded with his faith. He believed God and in God's promises that even if he did kill Isaac, that God would raise him from the dead. That's in Hebrews chapter 11. Do you wonder why God and Abraham go through the entire act, even to the point of him drawing out a knife before God stopped him? Your faith has to be physically acted out. We too need to put our actions where our lips and our thoughts are. Would this incident have come down through the ages if it was just simply lip service? Right? Abraham, take Isaac and kill him. Yeah, God, no problem. Just let me finish sleeping and I'll do it later. And then it never happens. That wouldn't go down in history as an act of faith. Maybe it's a story of lameness, but not faith, right? Abraham proved his faith to God and himself. His obedience in physically offering Isaac demonstrated that he really trusted in God. Verse 22, Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? See, faith and actions, they work together. 
Abraham's actions completed his faith. If Abraham didn't believe God, he wouldn't be able to go through with this work of, of obedience and offer Isaac up. His faith was shown to be true. It was shown to be complete and was made perfect by his obedient action. The phrase, faith was made perfect. Most people's faith isn't made perfect because most aren't willing to go through the actions of obedience. Their faith lacks the vitality and the power that Abraham experienced. Remember, Abraham didn't naturally have a completed faith. It was acquired through acts of obedience in a physical manner by the things God commanded. And what Abraham had is possible for us to have. Verse 23, And the Scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Faith alone will not justify you and I. That is a faith without works, which is a dead faith. True faith, living faith, is shown to be true and living through good works. And that is the type of faith that is going to justify. John Calvin, the great reformer, the champion of salvation by grace through faith alone, he understood James. He says, But James has quite another thing in view, even to show that he who professes that he has faith must prove the reality of his faith by his works. Doubtless, James did not mean to teach us here the ground on which our hope of salvation ought to rest, and it is this alone that Paul dwells upon. Real faith is always coupled with works. Real faith is always connected with regeneration. There are people who believe that because they said a prayer that that's what saved you. The words aren't what saved you. Those are just words. You're thinking, wait a minute, what about that criminal on the cross next to Jesus? Didn't he just talk and he was saved? Let's look at that really quickly. Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Yes, he did just speak and really didn't get the opportunity to do good works. But I want you to notice how this isn't the norm. He believed Jesus who was, he believed that Jesus was who he said he was, but demons believe that too. So what's the difference? Jesus himself audibly assured him that he was going to be with him in paradise. So I guess if you profess a faith in Jesus but live like hell, you can still be saved by Jesus if he's audibly told you so. I would venture more that you're delusional and crazy, but I guess that would work for you. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible, because we do have a deathbed conversion here. But I want to point out to you that it's the only one in the entire Bible. Look at the rest of the Bible. It's so much more apparent that Jesus is concerned with what we do and what we don't do. Look at what He rebukes. Look at what He exhorts. And I believe this recording of the criminal's conversion is in the Bible so that no one would despair if they were caught in that situation or if a loved one was in a similar situation. But I also believe that 
there's only one story so that no one presumes that this is the norm. This is the norm. You might trust in Jesus just before you die and wholeheartedly be His disciple. Only Jesus can be the judge of that. Only God can be the judge of that. We can't judge that. And obviously Jesus judged that this criminal would be the one, of, one of those disciples that got in without the evidence of His works. And you know what? Praise the Lord. I have nothing against that. God's full of grace. It proves that salvation isn't entirely dependent on human merit. Thank God. However, works are an indicator for us to see where we are in our faith. It helps us to see if we have evidence that we really believe what we believe. But God is ultimately the judge. But do you want to live such an inconsistent life? Living a life that is inconsistent with your faith isn't necessarily a guarantee for you that you'll die with the same heart as this criminal did. Jesus was able to judge the criminal's willingness to be obedient from that point forward. That's risky, right? Trusting that you're going to have this living faith in Jesus just before you die is like trusting that you're, you're going to be close enough as you're going down this heavy body of water and you see a stable rock. And right before the edge of the Niagara Falls, you can grab onto it. It's not impossible. Just chances aren't very good. And the mere words that you said aren't what saved you. It's a living faith in Jesus Christ that brings about tangible changes in your life. And the proof of your faith is in the works. There's spiritual transformation. A transformation in how you live your life. And it's impossible for your life not to be changed when Almighty God has come into it. In the case of that criminal who accepted Jesus, I believe that if he were given the opportunity to live, he would have done things that proved his newfound faith. You can't live a life of disobedience to him if your faith is real. When your faith is a living faith and there's a dynamic relationship with God, you have no choice. You have to change. Not that you won't fall or stumble, because you will, but you're not going to want to stay where you're at. There are going to be improvements and a progression towards spiritual maturity. And if there hasn't been a change in your life, you have to really take a close look at your relationship with God. Is it real? Is it living? Is it dynamic? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If there's no evidence of a new life, then there's no true faith. You have a dead faith, or perhaps a type of faith that the demons have. Do you continue to wallow in your sin and feel no conviction or desire for repentance? Do you have an attitude of rebellion towards God and towards God's Word, towards His instruction and His commandments? It's impossible to invite the Holy Spirit into our lives and not have a change in our lives. I'm not saying perfection, but there has to be a progression towards a deeper obedience to God. Is there a change towards godly living, godly thinking, godly actions? Charles Spurgeon said, The grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. What resulted in Abraham's faith? He wasn't prideful. He didn't become an extremist. And he was God's friend. You don't become pharisaical. You don't become judgmental. You become a friend of God. 
Verse 25, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Rahab was a prostitute. She was a poor a woman of poor reputation. How did she become righteous? She became righteous by what she did through an act of faith. She helped the Jewish spies by giving them lodging and then showed them how to get away. Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sikon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show me kindness to my father's house, and give me a true token. And spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. Isn't it interesting that in all of Jericho, they all knew how God dried up the Red Sea, And that even though they all lacked courage, she's the only one to act upon this information. She believed in their God and proved that by helping them. Her life changed. And it was through a living faith that brought about that change. It was active. And there was something done to prove it. Her belief in God of Israel wouldn't have done her any good if it was just by thought or by lip service and absent of action. Her faith saved her because she did something to prove her faith. Her faith wasn't just in her upbringing or in her mind or on her lips at church. She did say a lot to profess her faith, but her faith was completed by her actions. Why is Rahab used as an example? Well, one reason may be to show that our faith isn't earned by our not sinning the big sins. That it's not earned by our heritage. And Rahab was not a Jew. She was a pagan. She was a Gentile. She was a member of an accursed race, the Canaanite race and religion. And she was from the wrong side of the tracks. Are we judging correctly when we consider a person to be be good because of where they are in life or where they attend church or that they're intelligent or from a good family? Is that how God judged Rahab? Remember that Rahab was not just saved, but from her lineage came King David. And from David came Jesus Christ. She becomes part of the Messianic lineage. Matthew chapter 1. I mean, what an honor, right? What a sign of acceptance by God. And James is writing about his great, 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 numerous greats, grandparents. Direct grandparents. He's a brother of Jesus. He has a direct lineage, right? And Abraham is the father of our faith and the one held in such high esteem with our Christian heritage. And he's also writing about grandma, a prostitute. And how God accepted them both. What does this tell us about God? We often don't really think about God's character when we read the Scriptures, but it shows that God's fair. Everyone has a chance to please God, no matter where you were born, no matter what your background is. It's fair and it's equal to all. And it doesn't matter who our parents are or where we were born, our level of intelligence, our abilities. God is fair. He's not partial and He loves all. He looks upon our faith and to the extent that it's a living faith in Him, 
He receives it. The same from people who are looking to do His will. Isn't it interesting that James uses the example of two people that are so different? Abraham and Rahab. Both examples of living faith. Calvin writes, He designedly put two, together two persons so different in their character in order more clearly to show that no one, whatever may have been his or her condition, nation, or class in society, has ever been counted righteous without good works. Earlier on in this chapter, James addressed partiality. And perhaps this is his way of rebuking the partiality the early church showed on each other. To bring up Abraham, the father of the Jews, and Rahab, a cursed race, Gentile, prostitute woman. He was probably showing them how God's not partial. And there are lessons to be gained from Abraham and Rahab, and both of them dealing with our faith and what we do with it. Abraham's lesson is that if we believe in God, we will do what he tells us to do, just as he did with Isaac. Rahab's lesson is that if we believe in God, we will help his people. We will practically do things. And both are actions and evidences of their faith. Verse 26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. When you go to a funeral and you see the body in the casket, is the person really present in that corpse? No, right? The body is just a shell. And the body without an animating spirit is dead. The body needs its spirit in order to communicate, communicate itself to the world. And likewise, faith needs works to communicate itself to the world. The spirit animates our faith. So faith or belief without acting it out is a dead faith, a lifeless faith. And the body without the spirit is the scriptural definition of death. Your spirit never dies. It doesn't die. Your body does. And faith without works is like a dead body. This dead faith is incapable of saving you. You may still have a faith. It's just a dead one. And a dead one does nothing for you. Salvation is a gift from God. But James is saying, don't trust simply in your declaration or a salvation that isn't marked with evidence to show that you're a disciple of Jesus. Our faith, the living faith in Jesus Christ, is able to break down any barrier, racial, economic, political, age, gender, class, whatever it may be. And people may not be reading their Bibles, but they're reading you. How do you read? What's your story? How are you living? You will be read by people who will never open a Bible. What's your life telling people? So, what one thing can you do tonight, tomorrow, to obey God? What tangible thing can you do to demonstrate to God and to others that you really believe in Him? Do you need to reconcile a relationship? Do you need to forgive somebody? Do you need to apologize for something you did and figure out how you can right a wrong? Do you need to correct a lie? Are there people around you with tangible needs that you can actually meet? Commit to doing that thing tonight or early tomorrow. And if you can't think of one thing to act out your faith, then ask God to show you. Pray. Ask Him. He will. And ask believing that He will. Except once He reveals it to you, be sure to act upon it. And not just keep it, keep it as an idea. So let's be doers of our faith. Let's pray.
Lord, uh, we desire to have true faith, a living faith, dynamic faith, one that proves that we are disciples of Jesus. I ask God for those of us who are struggling with this, of being doers of our faith, that you would reveal to us the tangible things that we, we can do to show that we are disciples of Jesus. God, I ask that you would forgive us as a church if we have not um, fulfilled this commission. I pray that you would give us insight as to how to go about it. In Jesus' name, amen.